Shelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Nina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. This is the first episode of this podcast, and I truly want to thank you for checking us out. Before we launch into the book, I just want to go over the concept of this podcast and tell you a little bit about who I am. My name is Mina, as I mentioned, and I'm a K-pop multi-fan and K-drama fan. I'm going to be approaching this podcast as someone who is avidly interested in trying to learn more about Korean society and culture. You can check out my trailer for this podcast to learn more. And if you would like to share with me your own interpretation of the books we read through this podcast or share any additional context or your own lived experiences, I do invite you to send polite and respectful comments to my social media accounts. You may not always agree with a certain given author's perspectives or opinions, but we want to express our thoughts respectfully. No fan wars here. This podcast will usually include spoilers for fiction books and definitely will include them for nonfiction books. I will assume you have read the book, but I will also let you know before the sections where I will be giving spoilers. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Shine by Jessica Jung. And now for a no-spoiler summary of the book Shine by Jessica Jung. Rachel Kim is a Korean-American teenager who is currently living in Seoul and working as a K-pop idol trainee under DB Entertainment. She grapples with the pressures of the grueling training schedule she must endure and with the guilt of having uprooted her family from their life in New York to Seoul. Rachel is a doting daughter to her mother who wants her to also focus on school and not just her K-pop dreams, her father who is managing a fledgling boxing gym, and her little sister Leia who loves the worlds of K-pop and K-dramas but is still struggling to fit in at school. Rachel's day-to-day life is dealing with the cattiness and competitiveness of the other trainees, especially her main rival, the heiress, Nina Chu, when she catches the eye of the K-pop boy group star of the moment, Jason Lee. She tries not to get distracted by his attention, though, because she needs to focus on getting debuted before she ages out of the training system at the ripe old age of 17. Besides, the idols and trainees under DB Entertainment are under a dating ban. Will Rachel's dream to shine as an idol come true, or will her dreams be dashed? So that was the plot of the book, and now let's get into who is Jessica Jung. If you're a newer K-pop fan, you may not know who she is, so I'll let you know. She is a Korean-American former member of a K-pop girl group under SM Entertainment called Girls' Generation. They're also known as SNSD or Soshi. Now, in their heyday, they were known as The Nation's Girl Group. Okay, so they were a very big deal. They broke out into an enormous level of fame in Korea with their 2009 hit, G, a total earworm of a song. That same year, Jessica's little sister, Crystal, made her K-pop debut with the SM girl group, FX. Girls' Generation was a huge phenomenon in South Korea. They even made a political impact with their song, Into the New World, which was adopted as a protest anthem both inside and outside of Korea. Now, as recently as the Hong Kong protests a few years ago, this song was used by protesters in the streets. In 2012, they came to the United States to perform on the late night talk show hosted by David Letterman and on the morning show Live with Kelly. If you're a younger Gen Z type person, you may not be aware of this, but David Letterman was a really big deal back in the day. 
And nowadays, it's a lot more common to see K-pop stars on foreign late night talk shows or morning shows. But back then in 2012, that wasn't as common. It certainly was not common for them to appear on US television, where not even Korean Americans or Asian Americans really had much of a chance to thrive. Girls' Generation beat out the likes of Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, and One Direction in 2013 at the YouTube Music Awards for their song, I Got a Boy. They also charted on the Billboard charts in 2014. Jessica herself was an extremely popular member in the group, but her reign as one of the leading K-pop princesses was cut short in late 2014. Also in 2014, Jessica, who had an interest in fashion, started her own fashion company called Blanc Declare. According to Jessica, SM and her fellow Girls' Generation members were aware of these plans and had allowed her to do it. But then in October of 2014, it was abruptly announced by SM that she would no longer be a member of Girls' Generation. SM announced that Jessica had decided to step down from the group, citing conflicts related to her business. But then, Jessica went on the Chinese social media site Weibo to say that both the members and the company had been fine with her business ventures, but that the members basically cornered her and she was made to choose between Blanc and Declare or Girls' Generation. Jessica went on to say that due to her business contracts, she couldn't quit Blanc and Declare, and so, seemingly, the members and SM decided to cut her out. Jessica later deleted this Weibo post, but I was able to find articles written at the time that this all happened that quote the translated version of what Jessica's Weibo statement said. You can take a look at those on my website, which will be linked in the show notes. A lot of Girls' Generation fans speculated that Jessica was blacklisted from Korean media by SM due to all of this drama. And I can't confirm this, but Jessica did spend many years promoting in Hong Kong and other countries and wasn't really seen much on Korean television after leaving or being kicked out of Girls' Generation. It's hard to know exactly everything that happened because we really only got a glimpse of Jessica's side of the story. The Girls' Generation members were not allowed to ever really talk about her again and didn't get to tell us their perspective of the situation. Now, if I have missed any of them talking about it, please someone just correct me. But it seems like the rest of Girls' Generation have never mentioned Jessica since she left, which is interesting because Jessica's younger sister, Crystal, from FX, remained under SM Entertainment until the year 2020 when her contract was up and she left to join another company. I just want to take one minute to consider that if what Jessica said happened was actually true, then whoa, like what a blow to your whole psyche. So one minute you're one of the hottest K-pop stars in the country, in several countries maybe, and the next minute you're not even in the group. And it doesn't seem like she got a chance to negotiate or find a way to do both. She was just kicked out, allegedly. I think other individuals in her situation would either just like go on a months-long vacation somewhere to try and recoup from that blow, but it seems like she was just going forward with Blanc and Eclair. She also went on to release solo music with a new company, but she wasn't able to promote, it seems like, on Korean television with her solo music. She also seems to have handled everything with a lot of grace and professionalism. There are YouTube videos you can check out where she's being interviewed and asked directly to her face about other Girls' Generation members, and she really handles it with a lot of grace and a lot of professionalism. Now, that's just based on what I've seen, so again, please correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe this book, Shine, 
was the way for Jessica to finally express her true feelings. Shine is a young adult fiction novel, and the reason I picked it is because, as a K-pop fan, I've always been interested in the day-to-day life of a K-pop star, especially in juxtaposition with images that we see of them all the time, where they always look happy, smiley, and perfect. Like, we all know life is not perfect, no matter who you are. So I was interested to see the flip side or like the behind the scenes of what their lives are actually like. So even though I was not a huge Girls' Generation fan before now, although I am now, when I saw that a book was written by an actual K-pop idol and that the book was written in English, I had to read it. To be honest, though, I had kind of low expectations about this book, partially because we know that people who work in or have worked in Korean media are often made to keep quiet about the details of their experiences. But if you ignore the actual storyline and plot and just pay attention to the setting of the book and the day-to-day life of the characters, I do think you pretty much get Jessica Jung's firsthand personal experiences at one of the biggest K-pop agencies. I know secrets that would set the K-pop world on fire. Quoted by the character of Kong Jina on page 234 of the book Shine. So rather than get deep into the plot of this book, which is something you can hear more about in other videos and blog posts and stuff, I'm actually going to delve into some aspects of idol life and trainee life instead, which are demonstrated or mentioned in Shine. In interviews she gave while promoting this book, Jessica often says that although this book is inspired by her life, it is not an autobiography. But if you have any knowledge of Girls' Generation or SM Entertainment, you can definitely get a strong sense that pretty much most of the things that she talks about were based on some amount of reality, and that probably some of the names and details were changed. I've seen online a lot of Girls' Generation fans speculating over which character was likely which member of Girls' Generation, and that's because, well, everyone loves mean girl drama. But my guess is she used elements of girls she knew as a trainee who maybe didn't even debut with Girls' Generation or didn't debut at all, or people she knew from other aspects of her life, to create composite characters so that you couldn't pinpoint exactly who is who. Now, Jessica did say that the younger sister character of Leia was, in fact, based on her sister FX's Crystal. And Jessica said that Crystal is the one who picked out the character's name, Leia. Just a fun fact for you all. Now, Jessica says that she wasn't actually worried about putting the K-pop industry on blast, as it were, because her story in this book is quote-unquote fiction. And because of this, I think we can generally assume that the information she presents is true, because like officially it's fiction, you know, fiction, but yeah, I think it's real. (laughs) And she's just using the fiction label to couch everything in that. So I got really interested in trying to figure out which aspects of this book were true. Like a lot of the stuff we've heard about or read about before, but sometimes it's hard to know if it's just like an exaggeration from like a K-pop gossip site or if it's truly true. So I started researching some English-speaking former idols or trainees and decided to compare the experiences that they talked about having with the experience that the characters in the book have. And I want to see if the stories that we often have read about are true or not. It was really important to me that we hear people talk about this in English as much as possible. 
So English is my native language. I'm not fluent in Korean. Normally, we rely so much on fan translations, which, by the way, so awesome. Fan translators, you guys are doing the Lord's work. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's some times where there may be some inaccuracies. You know, maybe they misunderstood what, what concept the idol was trying to get across. So I found these individuals on YouTube and other media who were formerly trainees or formerly idols, and we're going to look at each one of their experiences and compare to what happens in Shine. The first trainee I'm going to mention is Yodius. Yodius is British. She was a trainee who never debuted, and she left her company on good terms. And we have Coco, an American girl who trained with JYP and debuted as part of a girl duo called Coco Sori. Now, to be honest, there's kind of a lot of drama surrounding the demise of Coco Sori, but I just wanted to include her stories about the general world of K-pop and the K-pop training process. Coco has many videos with her friend Gina, who is also a former JYP, and she also trained under many other companies. She was a trainee for 12 years, and she never debuted, which is wild because she's pretty talented if you look at her you know, Instagram and stuff. She studied abroad in Australia, so she is fluent in English, and now works as a travel writer and lyricist. The last idol I looked at was Henry Prince Mac. He's an Australian guy of Chinese descent who was a member of a K-pop group that was founded by Hong Kong superstar Jackie Chan. Yes, THE Jackie Chan. That group was called Double JC which is spelled J-J-C-C, if you want to look this group up. His stage name during this time with the group was Prince Mac, but his real name is Henry Prince Mac, and that is what he goes by now. Henry has been outspoken about the restrictions that idols and trainees face since he himself was an active member of an actual K-pop group. And I will have links to all of these individual stories and on the website and in the show notes. All of these idols do still have to tiptoe around what they say. Before they leave their agency or the industry, they are asked to sign documents agreeing not to badmouth the agencies. So do keep in mind that even though these stories are coming straight from their own mouths in a language that is at least my native language, they do leave out specific details and remain somewhat vague. But this is probably the closest we're going to get to knowing what really goes on with trainees and idols. Also, I was really trying to avoid the whole dark side of K-pop thing and avoid sensationalizing these experiences. But I just don't think it's right to ignore them either and pretend that the way that these idols train and work is perfect or that it doesn't affect them in any negative ways. Training and coming up in Hollywood, for example, is not perfect either, or probably in any entertainment industry, you know, it's not perfect, it's not pretty, sometimes some terrible things happen. Especially since so many people do find solace in the fantastical world of K-pop, I was trying not to be super negative about it, but some upsetting topics will be coming up today just due to the nature of what we're discussing. So here's a content warning that some discussion of disordered eating and food, as well as beauty standards, physical and verbal abuse and bullying, as well as alleged possible inappropriate romantic relationships between trainees and company staff will be discussed today. Please feel free to stop listening at this point. If you are sensitive to any of the subject matter, you are always welcome to join us for another episode. One concept the book touches on a lot is the grueling trainings and the nerve-wracking trainee skills assessment day. 
So in Shine, and reminder here that there may be some spoilers, there are some very pivotal moments for the main character of Rachel, who is basically Jessica's character in the book, during appraisal days. They come and assess each trainee to see if they are at a point where they are ready to be debuted or whether they should be cut. Now in the world of Shine, if you screw this one day up, you could be cut on the spot, just kicked out of the agency that same day. All of your hard work up until that point will have gone down the drain. And this day is extremely important, and there's a scene where Rachel's nemesis, Nina, no relation, attempts to sabotage Rachel's appraisal. So our British friend, Yodius, the K-pop trainee who did not debut, she also talks about trainees getting kicked out immediately on assessment days. And there's just so many other trainees in waiting that can easily replace you that you don't really get another chance to prove yourself. The company is not obligated to give you another chance. There's also this scene in Shine that I found interesting called the wall sit. So it's supposed to be like a training exercise, I guess. Uh, You sit against the wall with your knees bent, you have to sustain a note, and you get hit in the stomach repeatedly while holding that note, like singing this note. And the objective is that you, you know, learn breathing or something or how to maintain a note, you know, when you're dancing. But it's also used in the book for punishment. The former trainees I researched don't really talk much about physical abuse like this, but I think that's probably outside of the bounds of what they're allowed to talk about. Prince Henry Mack talks about working 20-hour days normally. A lot of that is spent on vigorous exercise and dance practice, along with vocal lessons, rap lessons, and language trainings. It's very common for trainees to get only three or four hours of sleep. Even as an idol, due to hair and makeup schedules and traveling long distances to set into your schedule, and the fact that you still need to train once you are a debuted idol, you're on the clock from the wee hours of the morning until late at night and you barely get any sleep. There's a scene in Shine where trainees receive harsh verbal treatment from their trainers. Like there's a line where one trainer tells the trainees to get their heads out of their, well, I'll just say backside. Now, again, the trainees that I researched don't really go into verbal abuse, and they probably just aren't allowed to say any of that because that would be considered bad-mouthing the company. But if you read about K-pop, you can imagine that this kind of thing probably does go on. We all know idols must maintain what's considered a perfect figure, but we should always remember that they are only human. Most people are not naturally gifted with the figures and faces like the ones that we see on K-pop idols. I always want to remember this and not get caught up in the idol's physical beauty. Like, first of all, that's really superficial. There are so many other things to think about, such as their talent, whether or not they're nice and kind people. But of course, physical appearance is a major aspect of being an idol. Shine references weekly weigh-ins and having to constantly think about food intake. The characters are sometimes told not to eat something or they're sent to an extra dance practice or workout because they did not make weight. Our British friend Yodius confirmed in an interview with the BBC about trainees experiencing food deprivation if they didn't make weight during those weekly weigh-ins. She also mentions that some people were so food deprived, they didn't even get their periods regularly, which is something that can happen when you don't eat enough. And it was common to see people fainting from dehydration. So I just want to say here, guys, this is extremely dangerous. Please, please eat. Please, please eat. Please nourish your body. Do not undergo any extreme dieting to the point where your basic bodily functions, such as having a period, if you're someone who normally gets periods, start to shut down. That's not good. If you're passing out, that's not good. You can't be dehydrated. You can't be undernourished. It's just not healthy. 
So also in Shine, body shaming becomes part of the competitiveness against trainees and leads to bullying. And Yodius confirmed that trainees would bully one another for their bodies. So this body stuff was definitely weaponized. And I'll talk a bit more about bullying later. Another aspect of K-pop idol life is plastic surgery. In the book Shine, plastic surgery is essentially glossed over, like it's mentioned in passing. I think the whole thing with plastic surgery in terms of K-pop is to just maintain this idea of perfection that is really prevalent in K-pop. You know, it's sort of weird to me because perfection is relative. What is perfect to me may not be perfect to someone else for various reasons. And it's really weird that they would make these face-altering decisions on behalf of young trainees because in fashion, so many things are trends and trends come and go. You never really know what trend will be in by the time an idol debuts or reaches any appreciable amount of fame. It's just weird to me to tell people to go fix their face. Like these people had no say in their face when they were born with it. By the way, this is a completely separate concept from people who make their own decisions based on their own desires to get plastic surgery. I think that if you want to do that, that's your decision. That's great. And get procedures that you want done safely. I'm talking about plastic surgery that is forced upon people. So Yodius talked about her experience with her agency approaching her to get plastic surgery, and she was actually interested in doing it. Her mom, however, was less than enthusiastic. Now, Yodius was in the running at her company to potentially fill the role of her group's visual, so the best looking one for her group. Yodius also says that one of the companies that she worked for would typically not even tell you that you were getting plastic surgery. They would just send you there to get it. Okay, I had no idea it was that level of being forced to get plastic surgery that they weren't even going to like let you know or give you a heads up. It sounds horrifying. She didn't really elaborate on it, though. I mean, she didn't ultimately get any work done. And she also never did debut. So she probably doesn't exactly know how that works or what someone who has to go through that feels. Henry Prince Max said that he knew of individuals who were forced to get plastic surgery that they didn't want to get. Anytime that something is being done to your body without your consent or control, you know, that's just really a scary territory, especially if you're being told that you have to do it or you will lose a lot of money or fame or miss out on a once in a lifetime opportunity. And again, this is not to bash only on the K-pop industry because, you know, for all I know, Hollywood or fashion, modeling companies, force people into plastic surgery. Also, Shine has a line about trainees not even being allowed to sweat, which, hello, how do you control that? That's a common thing humans do. It serves a biological function, and it's weird to not sweat when you're in dance practice for like 15 hours a day. So just everyone, please remember that. I don't want anyone to feel badly about their bodies or their bodily function. K-pop stuff is fantasy, okay? It's not real. In the world of Shine, DB Entertainment is luxurious. They have a Michelin-starred cafeteria with super fancy cafeteria food. They have rooftop zen gardens, huge fountains, stuff like that. And that's definitely not what people from smaller companies experience or even probably what some of the early SM trainees experienced, assuming that DB Entertainment is based on SM Entertainment, which is what I am assuming. 
So Yodius talked about how at one of the companies that she was at, some trainees just would sleep on the mats inside of the practice rooms because, well, they were there like 24-7 anyway. And those mats inside the practice room were the exact same mats as were used as beds in their dorms. Yeah, definitely a far cry from a rooftop Zen garden. In Shine, Rachel, the character, does not dorm. She actually gets to live at home with her parents and her sister. Her mom doesn't even allow her to go to the agency during the week to practice. She's only allowed to go on the weekends. That's the rule her mom negotiated with the company, and as a result, her character is really resented by the other trainees, and she is viewed as a spoiled American. Real-life Jessica Jung mentions in some of her interviews and stuff that in real life, her mom was pretty strict and that she was not allowed to go to the agency as a trainee, except on weekends for practice. It's not really clear to me if she dormed there as a trainee, but based on the book Shine and her interviews, it sounds like she didn't get to dorm as a trainee. Maybe she did when she was in Girls' Generation. Imagine having to catch up with people who are in the practice room 24-7, who are sleeping there. And your mom doesn't even let you go near the agency, except on the weekends. I really do commend Jessica for being so talented and hardworking that she was able to train on a more limited basis than some of her peers and still make it in K-pop. And also, the competition between trainees is absolutely ruthless. In the book, this leads to people taking some extreme measures to try and get their competition out of the way. Here's a spoiler alert for you. At one point, Rachel has her drink spiked at a party by her nemesis, Nina, so that Rachel's assessment on the following day, you know, on that big assessment day where all the executives decide if you can stay or if you need to go, will be sabotaged. So our friends on YouTube, Gina and Coco from the Coco channel, from Coco Sorry, Gina mentions fighting with members over vocal parts because certain vocal parts have implications for how they film music shows and how they film music videos. So for example, if you have a certain part, you may get that solo shot that you want in the music video or for the music show filming, whereas a different vocal part may mean that you are only visible in the group shots. Both Gina and Coco discuss fighting over hair and makeup and trying to gain the attention and affections of the wardrobe and stylist staff so that you can look the prettiest. You know, you want the prettiest hair and the prettiest clothes, and you want to be the one to stand out from the rest of your group. Gina and Coco also say that some girl groups are not very close, and some are. It's just different from group to group. So if you're thinking about your favorite group and whether or not they are as close as they seem, it's it's kind of like 50-50. Some groups keep it very businesslike and just consider each other only as colleagues. They don't really have a personal relationship outside of their group activities. They're not really besties, but they're not enemies either. Also, Gina and Coco mentioned that in situations where you are living and working in such close quarters and spending so much time together, such as you know being members of a girl group or a boy group, I guess, Trivial things become big things in their isolated little worlds. That's what leads to like fights over hair and makeup and wardrobe. One hot topic about idols that we all love to think about is who is dating who, because many of us seem to suspect that idols are all dating each other. Our YouTube trainee friends, Gina and Coco, want you to know that yes, idols do in fact date each other. In Shine, they go a very K-drama route with Rachel being whisked away abroad by the guy from the hottest boy group, Jason Lee from the group Next Boys. The Rachel character gets 
taken abroad by Jason Lee and taken on all these amazing dates, but I'm not really sure how this would even work in real life. Like if the most popular boy group member was just running around Tokyo or wherever with a trainee, I'm pretty sure people would notice. So yeah, let's just chalk this one up to fiction. Also in Shine, Rachel mentions that dating is kind of easy in a way because South Korea is full of private movie rooms, private karaoke rooms, and private dining rooms. In the book, the characters also go to a private cafe that was opened by a former celebrity, and it is just for celebs. It's kind of like a speakeasy or underground place that you kind of have to know even is a place that you can enter. It doesn't look like a business establishment really from the outside. It just looks really nondescript. I think that this is probably a real thing, but it's hard to confirm this. Probably it is because it makes sense. I mean, so many idols open cafes and restaurants and stuff anyway, so why not? Now, although I Idols have strict rules about no phones and no going out. Coco from Coco Story mentions in her video that once she snuck in her boyfriend into the dorm and that it was not difficult. She also talks about distracting the manager who lived in the dorm with them so that she and her fellow members could sneak out. Coco said that some trainees in the companies that she has worked with have been fired for dating. Many people do date, however, within their company. So even though trainees and idols maybe can hide their relationships from the general public, it's probably a lot harder to hide it from managers, agency staff, and other members of the same company. In Shine, they mentioned the whole famous no phone, no social media rule, but the character of Rachel does have a phone and a Finsta, fake Instagram, and a cacao talk and all of that. Our UK trainee friend Yodius, she says the same thing. Phones aren't allowed, social media isn't allowed. The reason she was given for why trainees aren't allowed to have a phone is so that they will focus on training and that they're not allowed to have social media because that way they will seem more mysterious before they debut. Yodius adds that trainees were allowed 15 minutes of phone time at night to call their parents or family, but that most trainees did have a secret second phone. Also in regards to dating, Gina and Coco say that there is a larger LGBT community within K-pop than we may think, and some of these LGBT individuals have come out to their other members. In some cases, members have been supportive, but in other cases, it seems that Gina and Coco are aware of members not taking it well. The fact that their member is someone within the LGBT community. So that either has or can create some issues within groups. Now, Gina and Coco were being super vague when telling the story, so I really unfortunately can't offer you more than that. But I found this really interesting because we so rarely hear about this. The next thing I want to talk about is a really delicate matter, and I want to discuss it carefully because I don't want to sensationalize it or anything like that. It's about inappropriate relationships that adults, such as CEOs or investors of a company, may have with trainees, allegedly. So Coco and Gina confirmed that things like this do take place. They were pretty vague with details, understandably. They mentioned that they have personally never been put in these situations, which is a relief to hear. They talk about the lengths that people will go through to make their dreams come true. And they say that they don't blame people who go and do these kinds of things. And you have to imagine, especially when you have been a trainee for years, that you might just be holding on to this tiny sliver of hope that you are so close to making it. And maybe if you go through something that you don't really want to do, 
then your dream will finally come true. Also, some idols talk about coming from less than privileged backgrounds, and some of them might have thought that becoming an idol was a path to supporting their families financially. Like if your whole family is writing on your dream coming true, I can imagine, although I of course don't know, that if you're put in a really terrible and awkward situation, you might just go through with it. Gina and Coco mentioned that it's not uncommon in other industries outside of K-pop either. This is a really big problem in so many industries, not just entertainment. It's just sad. But like I said, I didn't want to pretend as though these types of things are impossible or that they may have never happened. So I just realized that I never really explained the part of the book where an inappropriate relationship occurred in Shine. So in the book Shine, there's many CEOs. Of course, the main CEO who is reminiscent of Isuman from SM Entertainment, but there's also a younger CEO who is a guy probably in his 30s or so, and he strikes up a conversation in one scene with Rachel Kim, and she notices a beautiful watch on his wrist. And this watch is unique because there's some stones set into it, rubies, I think, and it's also representative of his family crest, blah, blah, blah. He tells her all about it. Later, towards the end of the book, we see that Mina is wearing that watch. And Jessica writes in the book in such a way that it's like, she's not really saying it. Like she's not coming right out and saying the situation. So you kind of have to pick up what she's putting down based on what she's not saying. She even very cattily has the character of Rachel say, oh, Mina, what time is it? You know, something like that. That's what really prompted me to include a part in this episode where we talk about inappropriate relationships because it was so subtle in the book. It wasn't really in your face. It wasn't blatant. Many of you are familiar with the term slave contract. I really hate that term. And you may also know the backstory of agencies, particularly SM Entertainment, being famously sued successfully by some of their former idols for unfair contracts. In the case of SM, some of their contracts were 13 years long. If you're not familiar with this story, you can definitely search it up. Due to these lawsuits and legal actions, there is now a law by the South Korean Fair Trade Commission that idle contracts cannot exceed seven years in duration. However, in Shine, there's this one part of the book that I found absolutely wild, where there's a character who's a veteran K-pop star named Kong Gina. Please don't confuse her with Gina as in Coco's friend Gina. This is a fake person, Kong Gina. She tells the character Rachel that there are secret Swiss bank vaults where there is another set of contracts identical to the ones that only say seven years on them. And they are post-dated for more than seven years. Like, I didn't see anybody else really talking about this. Please let me know if other people talked about this. I feel like there should have been a bigger uproar about this part of the book, whether this is true. So either Jessica's just spilling major tea right now, or she just took some artistic liberties. Henry Prince Mack has a radio podcast where he talks about having met people who had up to 20 years contract. And when you listen to him talk about it, he's sort of going back and forth. He's like, yeah, 20 years contract. Uh, actually, I may be wrong about that. But yeah, yeah, 20 years. He also says he knows people who were contracted for 10, 12, or 15 years. It's no longer legal, as I previously mentioned, to have contracts go this long. So I can't tell if he's talking about people who sign contracts 
prior to this law being in, in place or if he had some kind of slight misunderstanding, you also have to understand that he is definitely dancing around the issue because he could get into trouble maybe if he lets people know what goes on with contracts. These are very secretive contracts. He mentions that contracts for idols are better in China than in Korea, but I haven't really researched that, so I don't know. Yodius over in the UK mentioned that she was offered a trainee contract, and at the time, which was before this law, she could choose between either a two-year contract, a seven-year contract, or a 12-year contract. And these are just trainee contracts. So she ended up signing a two-year contract, and she didn't have to do that thing that you may have heard of where people who leave an agency have to pay back the money that the agency spent on them to train them. And the reason she didn't have to pay that money back is because she did stay for the two years stipulated in her contract and therefore fulfilled the terms of her contract and did not owe any money. Coco's friend Gina did not have to pay any money back either because she was released from her company and released from her contract. So it sounds like it was more of a mutual thing. I think the payback thing happens if you just leave and kind of breach your contract. Gina and Coco say that different members within a company or within a group will have different contracts with different terms that they negotiate independently. So they encourage people to put in protective measures within their contracts before signing. Gina and Coco point out that trainees don't really get paid or see any income. And as a result, some trainees even work as part-timers because they just don't have any income. To me, that is so wild. Just think about training 20 hours a day. And in the little time off you get from the agency, you do you ever wonder if boy K-pop stars have an easier time of it than girl K-pop stars? Well, that's something they talk about in the book Shine. Jason Lee, the hot K-pop star darling of DB Entertainment, gets away with coming in dressed kind of sloppy, rolling into meetings late, holding up a bag of fried chicken when he comes in. These are things that the character of Rachel could never even think of doing. Rachel and Jason get into a huge fight and, spoiler alert, break up after the more senior pop star Kong Gina, fictional Gina, not the Gina on YouTube, is forced out of her group for dating. I really couldn't help but wonder whether this emotional scene in the book had something to do with Jessica's alleged ousting. So I really don't want to get into all this much because I don't care about Jessica's private life, but I'm only mentioning it because there is some relevance here. There have been many off and on rumors and at some points confirmations that Jessica was dating a guy named Tyler Kwan. Tyler is a businessman who invested in Blanc and Eclair, her clothing company. Tyler is also the CEO of Coridel Entertainment, which is the company that Jessica joined after leaving SM. There is so much written about Tyler and Jessica that one could probably do a whole podcast episode just about them, but yeah, I'm not interested in picking apart her personal life. I only mention it because this very dramatic passage on page 237 where fictional character Kong Gina is freaking out because her company has just let her go because her secret relationship that she had with another idol had come out and was made public. The company said, similar to what happened to Jessica, by the way, that the decision to leave was the character of Gina's. Whereas the guy involved in Gina's relationship was still with his company and seemed like he didn't have to face any consequences. There's this part where they're fighting and the character Rachel Kim says to Jason Lee, Kong Gina was one of the biggest stars and they didn't just kick her out, they ruined her, end quote. So to me, this sounds like maybe what Jessica felt like at the time that she was allegedly let go by SM. I don't think she was let go because of dating. That's at least not what SM said, but 
As we mentioned, she wasn't able to promote on music shows, possibly, according to fan speculation. She experienced a major media blackout. So this is an interesting scene when you think about the real life of Jessica Jung. I didn't get much of a sense from the other former trainees about whether it was worse for guys or worse for girls. It's hard to know how much they interacted with guys or like saw guys being treated by the company, especially since they didn't debut. Maybe they had minimal interactions with the other genders. Whereas Jessica, when she was part of SM Entertainment, Girls' Generation members would often collaborate with male members of boy groups who were also under SM Entertainment. They participated in those SM Family Town concerts too, probably during rehearsals and preparations and meetings for that. The difference between how male company members were treated and how girl company members were treated were a lot more clear for her to see. Henry Prince Mack gives us a little bit of a guy's perspective. According to him, he thought that the dieting pressure and weight loss pressure was much worse for girls than for guys based on what he saw. He talks about one incident where members of the girl group La Boom, when they were trainees, were getting very stressed about the weigh-ins. The K-pop industry has a lot of foreign talent. Not just Koreans who become stars, but also people of Korean descent who were born and grew up abroad, people who have mixed ethnic heritages, people who are from other countries entirely with no Korean heritage. Shine has Rachel talking about missing the U.S. a lot and how she has to go to Korean culture classes as part of her DB entertainment training, how Korean snacks taste weird, and it highlights a lot about the culture shock that she experiences. Her character's relationship with the character Jason Lee, who is white, Korean, and from Canada, dives even further into being Korean enough or not. But one issue with the plot that I found kind of weird is that Rachel's character grew up in New York City. She has this memory of a teacher confusing her with another girl who I believe is Chinese and is the only other Asian girl in her elementary school or in her class or something. And I just can't believe it to be true that someone who lives in New York is one of only two Asian kids in a grade level or in a school in New York City. But I suppose the point was to bring up the whole not being American enough when you're in America, not being Asian enough when you're in Korea. In real life, Jessica Jung was born in San Francisco. And so maybe that's why she wrote this piece in. But doesn't San Francisco have like a really big Asian population? Bay Area listeners, let me know. The character of Rachel Jung is seen as being a really privileged American in the book. And I'm not really sure why, because her character's nemesis, Mina, is a literal heiress, okay? Like her dad is some hotshot CEO. But Rachel is the one who gets called a princess a lot. So maybe it's the American thing? I, I don't know. They didn't get into it much. I do remember seeing videos of FX members calling Jessica's sister Crystal princess a lot in real life, but it seemed that was more of like a term of endearment for her being bratty or something, you know, not because she was American or spoiled. Gina and Coco don't appear to have noticed any difference in how foreigners are treated versus native Koreans are treated in the training system or in the industry. But they did concede that different CEOs or agencies may treat their idols and trainees differently from the agencies that they were part of. Henry Prince Mack, however, has a lot to say about this. When he debuted, he barely even knew a lick of Korean language. 
His assessment of the situation was that Korean manners are really strict and really particular. It can get you into a lot of trouble if you don't know all of the ins and outs about them. He said that while Koreans in general were nice to foreigners within the industry, it seems that he didn't get much sympathy for not having a handle on the language or insight and knowledge on Korean etiquette. But that was his personal experience and different idols may have had different experiences at their own companies. And now for some final thoughts and random thoughts that I have for you in conclusion of today's episode. If you like stories like this with an inside look at the life of trainees and idols, I have some recommendations of what else you can check out that's kind of similar to Shine. There's a great K-drama out right now called Imitation, and that goes through the life of trainees as well as some more seasoned idols. You can also check out a podcast by a singer named Esna and the YouTube channel of a former idol named Wei. She's from the girl group Crayon Pop. You should also, of course, take a look at the channels and radio shows of our friends today, Coco, Gina, Yodius, and Henry Prince Mac. I'll have all the links that you need for this available on my website. So regarding the book Shine, one random thought I had was that I really liked how Jessica incorporated Romanized Korean words here and there without any real explanation of what they meant. So if you are a fan of you know, K-drama or you're a Korean language learner, it's interesting because you might know what the words mean or you might have heard them before. I just thought that was a really cool detail. I also really liked the K-drama flourishes in the book. I mean, they were super corny at times, but this was a young adult fiction novel and so that worked, I thought. And then I liked how there was a, a really strong bond with the Kim family and the connections that Rachel had with her younger sister and her parents. Now, as for my recommendation as to whether you should read this book, if you are a Hardcore Girls Generation or Jessica Jung fan, then probably you'll enjoy this book the most. If you're just interested in the secret life of trainees, you can check out the other things I mentioned, and you can also check out this book. But I will say the plot has just a lot going on. Like there was so much going on. So do bear that in mind. If you're not that interested or just casually interested, you can just read a blog post about this book or watch a YouTube review of this book. This book came out last year in 2020, so there's plenty of other places to learn more about it. As for Jessica herself, in case you were wondering, she is still running Blanc and Declare, which has a brick and mortar store now in Seoul, as well as a restaurant inside that store. She's still putting out music. She's a social media influencer. She has a YouTube show with her sister, Crystal. I really like how she's never lost sight of her dreams. Even after what must have been a humiliating time having to leave such a huge girl group, Jessica has always just kept moving forward. And whether or not you're a fan of her or her music, I do think that's really inspirational. Jessica will be coming out with a sequel to Shine called Bright, which will follow Rachel, who has, spoiler alert, debuted in a group called Girls Forever. That name always makes me laugh. Bright is slated to come out in mid-2022. Jessica is working on it now, and she's promising juicy stories. So for sure, check it out if you liked Shine. And that's it for today's episode of K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend about our show. Please also check us out on social media. Our website has episode show notes and a lot more. Thanks for listening. Bye!